seeing that there are no markets for seal products around the world, seeing what's happened to the seal harvest on the East Coast, why would anyone think that there's going to be markets for seals from the West Coast is honestly beyond me. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bears. The idea of a West Coast seal and sea lion hunt, or cull, popped up earlier this year. It seemed a bit strange, but that perhaps there was some internal logic to it all. Killing seals and sea lions who eat fish could help the beleaguered, transient, and at-risk orca populations, ensure that fish stocks remain healthy enough for commercial use, and maybe exploit a new market for seal and sea lion-based products. But that's not how science works. In fact, based on some quick research in the interview you're about to hear, it seems that killing seals and sea lions would make things worse for orca populations, potentially create new competition for commercially harvested fish, and cost taxpayers millions in attempts to force a new market. Add on top of that the fact that all of this has been looked at on Canada's east coast, and the millions sunk into that industry have yielded none of the desired results. I wanted to talk to an expert about this, so I called up my good friend Cheryl Fink of the International Fund for Animal Welfare, or IFA, who has spent the better part of two decades defending Canada's seals from exploitation. Now, before we get into the interview, I have a little bit of house cleaning to go through with you, dear listeners. First, Patreon is back. I told you that I'd be updating it, and the very first new perk is now available. Ask a question. I'm going to be posting into the Defender Radio Patreon who I'll be interviewing in the future and every patron, that's people who give as little as $1 a month or 25 cents per episode, will be able to post questions that I may ask of upcoming guests. I'm also in the process of ordering some stickers and arranging new exciting things for patrons. I should also note that I have stolen most of these ideas from other Patreons to which I give, particularly the Ologies podcast by Ali Ward. Seriously? Check it out. I am obsessed with this podcast. That's Ologies by Ali Ward. It's everywhere you listen and you will love it. It's like my show, but just better, really. Uh, And less focused on wildlife, but still very interesting. To get involved with the Defender Radio Patreon and support this show, visit patreon.com slash Defender Radio or just follow the links in this week's show notes. And now Cheryl Fink joins Defender Radio. So, seals. Seals. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm well. Let's talk about seals. We talk about seals every year, you and I. Uh, well, we talk about seals on a regular basis, but um, we, we certainly talk about them at least once a year as the East Coast seal hunt gets going. And I, I really want to talk about this briefly because there's one point in particular that must be hammered home every time this subject comes up. And the reason I am hammering it home right now with you is I was at the uh, Nature Museum in Ottawa. That's not actually what it's called. It's got a longer name, I think. But uh, mm. they have a wonderful Arctic exhibit that's sponsored by Canada Goose. Um, and Canada Goose has put in a lot of money to make this thing happen. And as much as I detest the company, it's a wonderful exhibit. It's got Arctic life. Um, it's got a lot about the Inuit culture and history uh, and um, uh, historic migration of peoples. Um, so it's a really enjoyable 
thing, but they do talk about seals a lot. And what came across to me, and I mentioned this to my sister who I was with, who expects me to start going off on tangents at the drop of a hat, uh, is they don't talk about the difference between the two hunts. And this is really the strategy of the fur industry and the fisheries, I think. There are two hunts, and they are very, very, very different hunts. So let's talk very briefly about the two different hunts and why it matters that we differentiate them. It's so important, right? And uh, as you say, I think this is like a deliberate strategy, or we know it's actually a deliberate strategy um, by the federal government and the fur industry to try to portray all seal hunting as similar and you know the same, and it's not. So which one do we want to start with? The East Coast hunt? Yeah, let's well, you know let's let's start with the Inuit one because this okay. this also leads into a little segue. So let's start there. Okay, we'll start there. So Inuit seal hunting, very different from East Coast seal hunting. No NGO or organization has ever campaigned against Inuit seal hunting, and the main reason for that is because it is it's truly a full utilization hunt. Seals is an important source of food in the north. It's uh, important for the culture. It's important for for cultural reasons, so many reasons. Um, and it generally has not shown to be unsustainable or inhumane in the way that we've seen hunting happen in the commercial context on the East Coast. So yeah, Inuit hunting, full utilization of the animal. Um, hunters might go out and hunt, you know, four, five, six animals at a time. They're not going out killing tens of thousands of animals in a few days as they are on the East Coast. They're bringing that that animal home and using it to feed their family and to feed the community. And I think that's why, you know, most people generally don't take issue with that. And I think it's um, very important also- too, when we talk about that Inuit one to say that, and, and I have seen images of this. I have not personally experienced it, but to buy a can of peas, uh, Oh, JJ got excited about that. To buy a can of peas <laughs> in, in the far North, like not, not even the Arctic circle, just, you know, let's go a few hours north of Muskoka in Ontario or into northern Quebec um, or remote northern Labrador. Um, to buy a can of peas, you're looking at four or five dollars. To buy a bag of chips, it's four or five dollars at least, um, potentially even more. Like the food there costs a ridiculous amount of money because it all has to get flowing in. Totally ridiculous. And that's why country food or, you know, country food seals, caribou, fish, you know, what you name it is incredibly important as a source of nutrition up there. And I mean, if we want to talk about concerns, I'm more concerned about making sure that these animals are abundant and free of contaminants so that they can be harvested and used by people in the north. And the the other part of it, too, I think uh, this is my personal opinion. It is not your opinion. It is not any organization's opinion. Uh, I believe, though, as... um, uh, an ancestor of colonizers that it is not my place to say how another society that is still recovering from colonization uh, sustains itself or manages their culture or their practices. Uh, I think that's a very important distinction to make as well. Um, But on to happier things, let's talk about white guys in Newfoundland. (laughs) Fishermen fishermen in Newfoundland. Again, Hunting in the north has never, you know, come close that I'm aware of of overexploiting any any species. Whereas, yeah, us, us white guys have done a tremendous job of that mm-hmm. around the world. And uh, and yeah, the East Coast seal hunt is a, 
commercial slaughter for up to 400,000 harp seals every year. Um, they, they're not taking that many in recent years, thankfully, because most of the markets for seal products are closed, but the quota is still there. And it's just, it's, it's a large scale slaughter. It's a competitive fishery, meaning basically the objective is to get as many seals, seal skins into your boat in the quickest amount of time as possible. Um, so when I've been out there, I've been out uh, 12, got at least 12 times now, 12 years to observe the hunt. And you can see that it's it's all about it's all about money. It's all about profit. It's not about food. It's not about respecting the animal. It's not about welfare. It's about getting as many skins in your boat as quickly as possible. And that's why we see you know so many examples of cruelty and inhumane treatment of animals on the ice. And of course, one of the classic arguments is that we've got to kill the seals to protect the fish. That has long been a rallying cry. Um, and I I. My understanding is that the science is pretty solid at this point, but I'm going to let you, as the the expert in this area, uh, maybe explain what we know about the relationship between seals and fisheries in the East Coast. Yeah, there's a very big difference between what fishermen believe about seals and fisheries and what we now know about between seals and fisheries, um, thanks to you know decades of scientific research. And when it comes to harp seals on the East Coast, there is absolutely no scientific evidence that harp seals are preventing the recovery of cod stocks. There's nothing to suggest that killing more seals is going to have any beneficial effects or impact on cod stocks. Um, but as you say, we've been hearing this for years. And I think anywhere in the world, literally, where fishermen and marine mammals coexist, fishermen want to call marine mammals because they're highly visible. You can see them swimming around your nets. You kill one and cut it open, and you see the fish that you were fishing in its stomach, which is not surprising because you killed it while it was near your nets, you know? Um, all of the, all of these factors lead to this belief that seals are having a negative impact on cod. But when we look at it from a scientific perspective, look at all of the evidence, that's not the case at all. And I, 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 I don't know. I don't even know what to say about this East Coast seal hunt anymore. The government is pouring literal millions of dollars into it every year to try and sustain it, even though the international community has largely said, we're not interested in your seal products from the East Coast. Um, they have tried marketing schemes, and I'm very specifically using the word scheme because I wanted to give off that skivvy 1950s used car salesman sound. Um, they were talking, there was one report you and I talked about, and I made so many penis jokes. Um, they were trying to sell penis seal or so, pff, seal penis, um, to Asian markets. Like it, it's just like, what, 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 what's going on guys? Come on, let's give and, it up. And this is, this isn't even that long ago. Like, okay. So, so now I've been doing this for 21 years and I feel like we're coming back to all of the ideas that were coming up in the nineties about how we're going to utilize the seal resource quotes around that. Um, but coming up again as though these are fresh ideas and it's like, you know, we could market the seal meat and we can you know, do, do this and that. And it's like, we already tried these things, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we put hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to develop and market things out of dead seals. All of them have failed, you know, yeah. other than, you know, a you know, small market for the oil and the fur by and large, particularly with the meat, these, these ideas have failed. And yeah, and as recent as 2016, there were proposals going around calling on the government of Canada to put millions of dollars into a scheme to kill kill seals to make energy drinks out of their penises and to make slurry out of their meat to make hot dogs and you know all kinds of things. It's just, it's 
<laughs> it's just kind of disgusting to think about, but more disgusting to think that taxpayers' dollars would be spent on such a program when, you know, really there's there's far better things that we can be putting government money into. We can be creating green jobs. We can be doing things that make the world a better place, not seriously, not trying to market seal penises to the rest of the world. Absolutely. And you know what? I take it to the people of Newfoundland and say, hey, do you want us to keep trying to keep this industry alive that employs how many people roughly in in, in the East Coast? Well, it's not just Newfoundland, but it, it pops up in there's my a, head. Yeah, there's a few thousand licenses that are issued, but last, you know, in recent years, it's been fewer than a thousand sealers that are actively taking part in the hunt. So, so, so we've, it's a number that's, that's dropping. Yeah, we're spending millions of dollars a year to support an industry for fewer than a thousand people. Now, I would go to pretty much anywhere in St. John's. Uh, or really anywhere in St. John or anywhere elsewhere in the East Coast and say, hey, we'll give you $10 million a year to employ less than a 1,000 people for an industry that no one outside of this area wants to participate in. Uh, there's no market, there's no future, and it goes against all the science we have. Or we'll invest this in education, small business uh, funds and grants, nonprofit grants. Like just, I, I can't imagine anyone in their right mind would say, yeah, please keep giving it to the seal hunt. Yeah. Well, can I tell you, I was out, I was out there last week and I met a fellow uh, from Bay Roberts. His name's Sean Bath, and he's been getting a bit of coverage on the CDC and stuff. And he's a, he's a former fisherman, and now he's spending his time and a lot of his, his own money, actually, to clean marine trash, to clean trash out of the harbors. So he, every day he goes diving and he brings up tires, nets, you name it, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of what he's removing is ghost fishing gear, these lost fishing nets that lie on the bottom of the ocean and just keep killing anything that happens to encounter them. And he was saying there's so much of that out there. And to see like dying and dead and decayed animal fish that are being caught at the bottom of the ocean, I mean, but he, he was estimating something like 30% of the world's fisheries are being taken by these ghost nets that's never recovered, that's never... That's you know, insane, yeah. we're, just, we're just like wanton killing. So I'm like, okay, instead of putting money into trying to, you know, find markets for seal products, here's a guy, he needs support for what he's doing, right? He's cleaning the oceans by removing these ghost gear, ghost gear fishing nets from the oceans. He's going to actually help improve fish productivity, right? Mm -hmm. And like, these are the sorts of projects that we should be funding. And he said, you know, why can't this be a job? Why can't what I do be a job? Why are we paying people to take fish out of the ocean and not paying people to take nets out of the ocean? That's, you know, yeah, it's brilliant. Be, yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's like, those are the kinds of jobs that we need to start thinking about seriously for the future because it's, we need to start making the planet better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, I, I think that's just, it is brilliant. It's beautiful. It is an easy, clear solution. Um, so I, I, again, I, 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 okay, I'm doing it again. I did this last week and I'm doing it now. I've got my hands against my temples and I'm trying to figure out how the logic of this works and I cannot. So we're going to move forward. We're going to steamroll ahead into the next part um, before I start to bleed from the ear. And <laughs> does that work for you? <laughs> <laughs> How's that working for you? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Uh, <laughs> I need a whiskey budget. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about West Coast seal and sea lion hunting. So this came up, I think, just this winter. Uh, I had not really heard about this before. Granted, oceans are not my area of expertise, except for avoiding due to sharks. Um, 
because like I'm not going to walk into a grizzly bear cave. Why am I going to dive into a shark's backyard? It's just it's illogical. Yeah. It is. Uh, so the argument, more or less, um, is to commercially harvest pinnipeds, uh, which is the group, uh, the infra order to which seals, sea lions, and walruses belong. Uh, I'm going to be quoting from a blog, and I don't, is it MERS? Is that how you say it? It's the M-E-R Society. Uh, .wordpress.com. I'll post the link to it. It's a, a really well put together blog that avoids the politics, but has just sort of statements of fact with links to relevant study and content. Um, and I think for anyone interested in the subject, it's a great resource. Uh, but what is your understanding of where this came from? This, this desire from a group of, it looks like first nations, um, who wants to expand their ability as well as a large body of commercial interests and sports fishers. Yeah. It's, so this is the, sorry, I'll just yeah. interrupt before I let you start. Um, the Pacific balance pinnipit society was established in July, 2018 and includes a number of first nations, commercial and sports fishers and fur industry representatives. So let's point out fur industry representatives. They get funding, um, from everywhere, uh, including the government. Uh, to do this kind of stuff. Commercial obviously has a lot of money behind it. And sports fishing, I imagine, probably does pretty well for itself too. So, um, but anyway, over to you. What do we know? So, yeah, like you said, last summer, this this group sort of formed, calling themselves the Pacific Balance Pinnipit Society. And basically, it, from what I can tell, their whole purpose seems to be calling for a call of seals and sea lions on the west coast sorry not a call they want a harvest yes which to me raises some some yellow flags having worked on this for a number of decades now seeing that there are no markets for seal products around the world seeing what's happened to the seal harvest on the east coast why would anyone think that there's going to be markets for seals from the west coast is honestly beyond me i can't see that markets for seal products are going to appear anytime soon but this is sort of this is their argument. And as you pointed out, most of these are fishing interests, and they seem to be operating under the belief that by killing seals that they will somehow help uh, other fish species like salmon and herring to increase in abundance and to help restore those fisheries. And based on the number of very colorful charts I'm looking at, that's not true. Um, it, it appears... Again, yeah, sorry, go. So all of... All of the scientific evidence that we have to date, every, and we've been calling pinnipeds for a long time, or, mm -hmm. you know, overexploiting pinnipeds for a long time. It's like, let's, um, okay, it's, I'm going to interrupt. We're going to call it a cull because when you're targeting 50% of populations, uh, that's a yeah. call. That's all it it's is. A call. Yeah. And, and what we know is they, they don't work. I mean, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. They don't work. They, in some cases, there might be a short term temporary increase in the prey, but by and large, they do not work, um, and they have a lot of unexpected and unintended consequences, which I imagine we'll talk about a little bit later. But, okay, so so what they're saying is that, you know, there's too many seals. We hear this on both coasts. And I find this really interesting, too. It's the whole shifting baseline approach. Almost everyone alive today, none of us, and no, I'm going to say almost anyone alive today has not been around to see uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> we have, we've never had to live with healthy abundances of 
seals in this country because we've been overexploiting them and culling them and killing them for hundreds of years. So when we hear when we hear people say, well, the, you know, the population has exploded in the past 20 years, invariably these are populations that are just recovering to their pre-exploitation levels. They're just recovering to their historic levels because we've stopped calling them since about 1970 in most cases. So these are not overabundant populations, but nature is not out of balance. This is not a population explosion. This is merely pinnipeds that have recovered to what they should be in a healthy ecosystem. Um, but because we've never lived through that, we don't know how to live with healthy abundances of these species. It's quite interesting. One of the things that I'm enjoying about this blog and this discussion that's now taking place on the West Coast is it's exploring the ecosystem with a little more depth. And I was talking about this, and I cannot for the life of me remember if it was during an interview or just offline, uh, because it's sometimes hard to tell the difference uh, in my brain. Um, and one of the issues that seems to come up, it might have been with Charlotte Daw two weeks ago, anyway, from the Wilderness Committee. But one of the things that comes up that's very frustrating to me is we'll say, and I'll use the example of coyotes. Um, there's too many coyotes, and that's impacting X prey, uh, prey species negatively. So let's get rid of coyotes, or let's reduce the number of coyotes, for instance. Um, same as said, I think uh, wolves and caribou is another sort of similar example of this. And mm -hmm. while there is a clear logic in how that works, um, if we reduce the number of predators, their prey will be more abundant, right? It's, it's a, a straightforward logical chain. The problem is that's not how ecosystems work. There's never just two species. There are thousands of species. Uh, when you start considering everything from your apex predator down to lichen uh, and microbes, like it's 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 astronomical. It's 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 a beautiful miracle how many species there are in an ecosystem. And to think that we can just tinker with one to have a desired result on another without an impact on everything else is mind boggling to me. And I think in this conversation happening out West, there's a little more aware, uh, awareness of that because there are other at-risk species in play. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas with a lot of these other situations, it's it, there's not, A, we don't really deal with at-risk species. I think the caribou is one of the few examples, uh, mountain caribou herds uh, out West. But like with coyotes, they'll, we'll talk about culls or harvests or whatever. And because they are an abundant species and their prey species tends to be abundant, there's no real concern uh, given. But because we're dealing with killer whales and at-risk fish stocks, I think there's a little more credence being given. And there is a, a wonderful um, uh, uh, chart on here with links to a DFO uh, presentation that shows as harbor seal numbers increased, transient killer whale numbers also increased. And it looks like now they're increasing exponentially based on this data uh, from around 2004, 2005. They just started to skyrocket in population numbers. So it's interesting to me that we're seeing that come out in these conversations. Skyrocket, but they're still threatened under Sarah, I think. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, sorry. Yeah, I <laughs> should... There's only like, you know, a 300 and... Well, yeah, so this chart, just, just just for context for everybody, the chart yeah. starts at zero, and it looks like they would have been around five in the 1970s, and the y-axis moves up to 2010, the x-axis maxes out at 160 individuals. 
So there's the context. Like it's, it is skyrocketing in context because the numbers almost doubled over the course of 10 yeah. years. But and it's still dangerous. with the harbor seals. Yeah, there's a very clear correlation with harbor seals. Yeah. <clears throat> so if we start culling and removing harbor seals, what is that going to mean for you know, the recovery of the West Coast transient whales? Exactly. Um, you know, first of all, it's going to be a violation of their recovery strategy, and there's or and let's say that you know they did, they're going to be forced to shift to other marine mammal species, uh, you know, potentially porpoises or whales, which are going to be harder to catch, I guess, harder to feed on than a pinniped would be. So yeah, definitely there's going to be repercussions there. And even just looking at, you know, the seal and seals and fish part of it, the, these calls to kill seals are ostensibly to help improve salmon, you know, production, but seals eat hake, which eat juvenile salmon. So if you kill more seals, you could see an increase in hake and a consequent decrease in salmon. Mm -hmm. uh, seals also eat herring, which compete with juvenile salmon. So if you reduce the number of seals, you're going to get an increase in herring, which could also mean fewer salmon. And not even to mention there's, you know, over 135 other species which also eat salmon, Chinook salmon. So this so-called logical model of killing seals to increase fisheries is not logical at all because there's far more than just two species in the ecosystem. Yeah, and there's, uh, again, this this blog has a simplified food web from the Marine Education and Research Society, um, which, again, shows there's several species of fish, there are several marine mammals. Um, and, again, to think that we can simply pluck one out of there or change one without impacting everything else um, is somewhat frightening. Um so when we start looking at this, is there, and I, and I want to give this credence, is there an argument beyond that extraordinarily simplistic seals may eat fish, so let's have less seals and sea lions? Um, outs, like within that argument, or sorry, other than that simplified argument, is there a case to be made for harvesting or culling or killing uh, marine mammals like seals and sea lions on the West Coast, do you think? I mean, I don't think so. I think, you know, First Nations have historic, like cultural uses for pinnipeds. And I think we want to make sure that there's an you know abundance so that that can continue. But there's certainly no commercial justification for it. And there's no ecological justification for it. Let's say that. And what we've seen, too, I think may indicate why this is coming up. Um, and that's how the seals and sea lions are being perceived by the people who are on the water. Um, and I think we can't dismiss that. And that's where we have gotten into trouble, I think, as conservationists or as, um, you know, advocates, is we try and simplify an argument and dismiss what people are seeing. Uh, again, I think I'm going to go back to what I know, and that's people talking about in the West Coast, well, I'm seeing a lot more predators. You get hunters and trappers saying, I'm seeing more wolf and wolf track and wolf sign in this area. Therefore, there's more wolves therefore we should kill them. And I think when we try and dismiss that initial anecdotal observation, we get ourselves in trouble. So yeah. I think we have to accept and find a way to manage the conflict between the natural ecosystem, which has many seals and sea lions um, competing with commercial fishermen um, and the fishing industry. So is there a way that we can potentially mitigate those concerns, do you think? 
Or is that something that we simply need to research? We need to put the time and money into finding a solution that will actually be ecologically sound. I think, first of all, you're right. Like We have to ask the question, if we're seeing more of a species in a certain area, we need to ask the question, why? Is that happening? Is this, a, is this an increase in abundance? Is this a change in distribution? Is there something that we're doing that's attracting more animals into a particular area? So I think it's important to figure out why we're seeing what we're seeing, not to, as you say, not to dismiss it outright, but to try to dig deeper into it. And then I think the second part is like, we really need to start thinking about how we can coexist with, you know, seals, predators, wolves, coyotes. Um, we've never, we've never had to do it before. We've never tried to do it before. We've just killed them and that's not had really good consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think we need to, we need to start thinking about how can we coexist with these animals so that, you know, there's fish in the ocean that, that are plenty enough for seals and whales to eat and also some left for fishermen. Um, if that's, <laughs> if that's the desire, which I imagine it is, but there's, there's gotta be ways that we can coexist with these animals. Like we can't just, you know, see them as competitors and, our first response be to try to kill them out. And I think something that's worth mentioning too is the implementation of the precautionary principle, which in my limited experience comes up not nearly enough in topics of wildlife management. Um, And I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that statement, but the the precautionary principle in general um, is the idea that we should try and prevent harm whenever we can Uh, even if we don't know all the details yet. So in this case, we would implement the precautionary principle by saying we don't know what negative consequences in the ecosystem, even though we know some of them or we can guesstimate some of them. Um, So even though we we don't have a full picture of what will happen, we can say that this could cause harm. Therefore, we should not do it or at the very least, we should not do it till we have more information. Um, so do you think this is an example of when wildlife management should have that stamp ready and say, look, we don't know enough, or this could have spiraling impact that we can't predict, uh, accurately enough. So everyone back off while we figure it out. Yeah. And I think in most cases we're going to require, it's, it's true. A precautionary principle seemed to be like trendy for a while and you you don't hear it very much anymore. That's because Um, I think people want action. Frankly, again, I think that the caribou and wolves, which I know you're involved with as well, that I think that is the perfect example of the precautionary principle being just thrown out the window. Um, Because it's like we we, we can imagine that there are negative impacts to wolf calls and killing. Uh, We have seen it evidenced elsewhere, but we cannot say with absolute certainty what will happen. The uncertainty in such a, a hypothesis is extremely high. So rather than killing wolves, we should do what is least harm, which would be to end all of the environmental changes. But anyway, that was yeah. a bit of a segue. I get really kind of amped up about that, as you know. People want action and politicians want to appear to be doing something and politicians tend to not look further than a four-year span at maximum, right? Um, but yeah, what we need is like, and, you know, imagine a day where where we had politicians or policymakers who would say, you know, in the interest of having a healthy and resilient ecosystem, we're going to manage our fishing quotas such that we're going to make sure that there's enough fish for the seals and for the whales and for the seabirds before we take it what we want, not take as much as we want and then try to kill all the predators because then we think that there's too many. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if we took that approach to to, <laughs> to management. It's a long shot, I know, but, you know. Yeah. I think if we, if we want our oceans to be healthy and to keep 
producing and to keep them productive. Not that they are particularly now, but um, you know, it's the end of the world, and I'm throwing my. We're going to have to. I know. I know. I'm like totally trying not to get depressed lately. This the climate change story yesterday, where Canada's warning twice the rate of the Western. I'm just like, oh, like we need to start doing something. I really. Well, I think you and you and I are are doing our local things. We talk about that a lot. With you know, uh, I haven't bought a plastic bag in several weeks. Um, and I've got some of those reusable ones coming and, you know, we both try and be conscious of it and we talk a lot about it, but it is, it is a lot. And I recommend anyone feeling the stress of that to look back to episode, um, the advocates counselor, uh, with a counselor that I interviewed who talks about this kind of stuff and self-care and the importance therein. It's in your feed. Back to you. (laughs) Back to me. We also, and I've been doing pretty well on my plastics, I think I have to say. Yeah. But... We need to also move beyond personal behavior change. I mean, yes, that's an important part of it, but we also need to get governments and industries to make change as well. We can't we can't just do it on our own. We need to get the decision makers to pay attention as well. Yeah, and the environmental really, watchdog I mean, came out saying that Canada has failed to meet its own standards. Uh, yeah. I think this week as well. It was either this week or last week. There's an election coming up. Time there to- is. You know, these are the issues that we need to be raising. Like, what are you going to do to, what are you going to do about climate change? Like, ask candidates, what are you going to do to protect the environment? Well, and I think too, it's specifically, and this is the way I'm personally treating it here in Hamilton. I mean, I know who you've got up in Guelph, which is amazing. Um, Yes, it is. And (laughs) here in Hamilton, we've got a retiring MP um, who's been around for a long time. And for me, the big question is, is not what are you going to do? It's which specific legislation are you going to support and put forward? Because I I personally have grown very weary of promises and apologies. Uh, I just want to see action. Show me. Stop telling me. That's where I'm yeah. at. Um, yeah. Because I think uh, without getting too into politics, y- you can only promise and apologize and say you'll do better so many times. Uh, you, you simply have to take action. You've got to make decisions that won't necessarily be popular, but for long term is necessary. Um, and we need politicians who are brave enough to lose their jobs to do the right thing. We do. Yep. Anyway, uh, back to seals. I like them. Okay. One of the, th- <laughs> actually, you know, something I want to talk about, this comes up a lot and I know you, you spend time managing this issue. I have seen many fishermen talk about, well, not many fishermen. Let me rephrase that. I have seen many proponents of seal culls and hunts make the statement that baby seals aren't killed because that's the picture everyone sees in all of the advocacy campaigns is those adorable little big black eyed white furred babies. Um, And they say, well, we're not killing those. They're lying to you. The end. Um, so can you clarify that? Cause I think that's just a nice little aside. Just kind of aside, but okay. <laughs> that's just and, how and I, I'm, it's, it feels like Monday. I cannot get over how Monday this Wednesday oh, feels. I'm, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it all depends on what your definition of a, you know, a baby seal is. Um, and some people don't even like us calling them a baby, but what we're talking about is an animal that. Okay, they're, they're born, they've got their white fur for about two weeks while they're nursing from their mothers. The mothers abandon them on the ice and they swim off to find a male to mate with for the next year. It's kind so of you've rude. got these pups that are, you know, two, three weeks old, lying on the ice. 
haven't learned to swim yet, haven't learned to feed themselves yet, pretty helpless. And that's the time when they're hunted on the East Coast. So you've got an animal that can live for, what, 25 years, 25, 30 years. They're not sexually mature until four, five, six years. And we're talking about a three-week-old animal. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty comfortable calling that a baby seal. <laughs> if you're going to call it anything a baby yeah. um, or a juvenile seal, right? These are animals that are three weeks between three months of age. That's 98% of the seals killed are under three months of age. So, you know, they may not have their white coat anymore, but they're still very much uh, baby seals. And when you think about it, that's really unusual. Like we don't normally hunt baby animals or like animals that are three weeks old and not fully mature yet for many other species. Yeah. At least long-lived mammals, you know, we kind of let them get to maturity and let them have a chance to reproduce before we, before we hunt them. But logic goes out the window apparently when we're dealing with seals. Um, what can people do? So this, this is the important part to me, especially on an issue like this, that feels endless at times. Um, how can people really make a difference either in the ongoing funnel of money to nothing on the East coast, uh, with their tax dollars or on this proposed. And I, I don't even understand what's, I think this is still just like being talked about in like a white paper type situation out West. I don't think anyone's taking it seriously in government at this point, but, uh, it's important to, to meet it head on. So between those two things, what can people be doing to make a positive change to ensure that we are, being both compassionate and kind to the environment and ecosystem and individuals therein, as well as following the best available science. Yeah. And I always come back to, you know, contact for federal issues, which most seal hunts are managed by Department of Fisheries and Oceans, is get in touch with your member of parliament, you know, especially going into the election. And especially if you live in, on the West Coast, get in touch with them, ask them what their position is on this on this. Let them know that you are opposed to culling marine mammals, that you want to see healthy and abundant populations of marine mammals, and that you know we need, it's our fisheries policies that need adjusting, not the number of seals in the ocean, uh, to, to get back to a healthy ecosystem. But I'm I'm all for you know just being a pain in the butt in your local politician side, and <laughs> you know just keep on them squeak. And this is what I've seen too, and well you've seen it too with the the fur industry is they're small in number but they're loud, mm-hmm. right? And squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, and they will send, they're in Ottawa. They've got an annual event, at least one annual event in Ottawa. Uh, I believe, was it Sopak who gave them like a day, uh, like Fur Trapper's Heritage Day or some nonsense? Oh, that's right too, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we've got we've got Seal Products Day coming up too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they've, yeah, they yeah. are well-funded and organized. Uh, and I think at, you really nailed it is talking to your representative because as, as important it is to have your voice go to um, the head of, you know, the DFO and the prime minister's office, you need the person who you could potentially vote out or vote in again, or whose local yeah. party you may donate to or not donate to or donate against. Or, vo- or volunteering for their election campaign this fall. Exactly. And say like, you know what? This is an important issue to me. I don't want the staffer response, which is when, and that's the standard email any of us are used to getting where it's, um, you know, I, I, great example is with the wolf stuff um, when we're emailing Alberta uh, and we get back an individual 
letter, which has clearly been written by someone from uh, Alberta Environment and Parks. Uh, JJ, sorry, JJ's being very loud because I'm being very animated during this conversation. So she's picking up toys and dropping them around me. That's what all of those noises are, if people can hear them, which I'm sure you can. I'll listen to editing. Anyway, um, but yeah, to say, like, I want to know how you're going to vote when this comes up. Um, specifically, I don't want the the bureaucratic answer. I want to know your voting history and how you plan on voting. If you're going to use your influence as an MP, MPP, MLA, uh, MNA to to make this happen, uh, and say, and that's going to matter when I vote, and it's going to matter when I talk to people about how I vote, uh, or as you said, volunteer, donate, etc. Yeah, if you get a candidate who gives you an answer that you like, and they're going to do something for animals and for the environment. Help them out, get them elected, do do whatever you can to help get them elected so that they do have power to make a difference. And you know what? This uh, I think people get very intimidated by the idea of volunteering for a politician. And I've worked on some political campaigns, and I can tell you politicians would die if you said, hey, I'll go drop off flyers at people's doors, or I'll man the phone line for four hours, or... I'll bake cookies for other volunteers. Any help they can get, they will take. Uh, and if you have a special skill, not like a Liam Neeson special skill, but like if you are in media or if you are a graphic designer or um, you are a baker, if you own a restaurant, you own a business, they'd love to know about that too. Uh, you can make such a difference in a local campaign. Uh, so really, people, get out there and get involved, and we can turn the seal stuff around. Right? It's not that scary once you once you get out there. I remember we did some leafleting last year, and it was a little bit intimidated to go out and talk to people. And you know, people. And you know what? So what? People are going to say no, thank you. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. The wor- worst case is people are going to say well, nope, not for me. Worst, worst case, you get you know used to a little bit of rejection and <laughs> builds character. And if you're dating or something, let me tell you, it's good for you to build that up. If, if you're what dating? Dating, yeah. I tried to make a joke and it didn't work. <laughs> what? Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna endorse campaigning for your local candidate as a good way to date. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if you're dating, you need to get used to rejection. Oh, okay. I get yeah. you. I it's, thought you were talking about leafleting as a good way to, you know, meet someone. Well, it could be. In. Yeah, you know <laughs> what? That actually could be. But, you know, let's start the show over as a dating episode because I think we're on to something here. This is how you meet people oh with the God. same political ideologies, people who are interested in the same things as you, who want to get active in their community. I think we're on to something. Entering interesting conversations with people. It gets you outside. You're walking around. Get some exercise. Mm-hmm. Get the step count up on your... Fitbit, you know. Mm-hmm. For those of us who have a Fitbit and not some fancy garment. Um, anyways, let's wrap the episode up now that we've gone off on our real. This is like now a tangent on a tangent on a tangent. Yeah, but that's why you edit it, right? Well, I'm not going to edit. No, I'm going to leave most of that in. It's fun. People love us. Anyway, so. Um, I love you. <laughs> well, no, but I love you, so it's by extension. Okay. You know, it's the, it's the, trans, the transitive property. Thank you. Transitive <laughs> property of love. Um, the uh, uh, people want to get involved. IFA, do you have an action up? We have one on the East Coast uh, hunt. We do not have one up yet on the British Columbia proposal. Because but there yeah. isn't necessarily something to comment on, per se. 
not, well, you know, contacting your MP is still probably the best thing to do there. Say, yeah. like, I'm aware that this is an issue, it's arising, and I want to make sure that it doesn't happen and that you're going to do whatever you can to make sure it doesn't happen. But yeah, uh, org. there should be an action there to uh, ask Justin Trudeau to stop subsidies to the East Coast and support green alternative industries in its place. To learn more about Cheryl and IFA's work, visit www.ifawifa.org. I want to send a big thank you to Cheryl for sharing her time with me and all of my interruptions, which I know were pretty bad, but we're actually good friends and interrupt each other all the time. It's just that when we're doing an interview, Cheryl's much more professional than me, so you don't hear it. I also want to thank all of you for joining me. Remember to hit me up on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and Instagram at Howie Michael to chat, see adorable pictures of JJ, and to enjoy the many opinions I have on many, many things. You can also become a Patreon of Defender Radio for as little as 25 cents per episode. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Defender Radio. Links to that are in this week's show notes. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind, stay informed, and stay strong. Stay strong.